that shows that the gospel really does change lives. So we're going to look at the Word of God today and see just what it has to say about that for those of us who hold jobs outside of the church. But to get there, we have to walk through some really difficult words, particularly some difficult to interpret words. The reason for that is that sometimes we bring our baggage to the Bible, we bring our scars to the Bible, and that prevents us from understanding what it really means. I'll give you an example, and then I'll talk a little bit about why these words can be difficult for us in the same way. If you could imagine maybe a young boy who grows up in the home of a father who is a drunkard, and this father's drink of choice is red wine, and so every night he would have two or three bottles of red wine, and the son would grow up seeing this in a clear glass and just knowing the sight of it seeing how his father's behavior would change as he would become drunk every night. And on occasion, God forbid, the father would abuse the boy in his drunkenness. And this young boy grows up in this difficult environment year after year, day after day. Grows up, becomes a man, becomes a believer in Jesus Christ, begins reading the Bible and saying, this is God's word, I want to understand this. What does it mean? He's reading through the Gospels, and he comes to the story of the wedding at Cana where they run out of wine at the wedding. And Jesus' mother comes to him and says, they're out of wine, will you do something? He says, no, I don't do anything. But then he decides to do something anyway, and he changes the water into wine. And then the master of the feast calls him over and says, well, usually we start with the good wine, and after everybody's had their fill, we switch to the bad wine, right? But you've brought the good wine out last. Now, there's deep meaning in that story for us. But for that young man who is dealing with his past with his father, it is going to be especially difficult for him to discern what that means. Because there are just so many scars, so many triggers when he reads about wine, when he reads about this master of the feast who's implying that people got drunk at this wedding. So much difficulty, even if he doesn't recoil back against the word of God and he says, I want to understand this, I want to know what it means, he's still going to have a hard time because of the scars in his heart. All of the United States is in that same position about what we're going to read about today. Uh, because we have in our country a bitter history of racism and slavery. And when we read these words, it's probably going to trigger in your mind, Ooh, oh, well, what, what does that mean? It might make some of us want to recoil back. And for those of us that really want to understand them, it might put obstacle in the way of us understanding them. So I'm going to handle things a little differently this morning. Usually what I do is dive right into what these words mean for our lives. Instead, today I'm going to spend about half of our time together answering a few of the questions that these words might make you want to ask, and then we'll spend the other half talking about the meaning it brings for our lives. Let's look at the book of Titus together. We're looking at chapter 2 today. We're going to read verses 1 through 10 so that you get the context, but the sermon is only on verses 9 and 10, and so after we're done reading, I'll read verses 9 and 10 a second time. Here's what the word of the Lord says. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love and in steadfastness. Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. 
Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Today's sermon is on verses 9 and 10, so I'll read those again. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. These are the words of the Lord. If you're a Christian, you need to know why those words are in your Bible. Because whatever they mean, they are the word of God for the good of his people. Now we bring a lot of questions to words like that and probably the biggest question we bring, which I'll spend the most time on is, wait a minute, is God approving of the institution of slavery with these words? He is telling bond servants to submit to their masters. Is he approving of the institution of slavery? We'll spend about half this morning answering that question, and then we'll dive into what the words do mean for us. Now, I wrote out this week a very long answer to that question, and then it occurred to me what should have occurred to me at the very beginning. People don't like long answers. They like short answers. And so here's the short answer to that question. Does the Bible approve of slavery? The answer is no. The Bible condemns first the lies that the institution of slavery is based on, And then it condemns the act of enslaving others at one point that we'll read today. And in doing so, condemns the institution of slavery. But it does leave one thing intact, and that is the real authority that your boss has in the workplace. We have workplace relationships that have authority. You probably have a boss if you have a job. And that boss's authority over your work really is real. That part of it, the Bible does affirm. We'll dive into each of those pieces next. First, there are two lies that the institution of slavery is often built on, not at every period in history. And in fact, in this period of Roman history, it wasn't exactly built on these lies. But through most of history and in most of the world today where slavery is practiced, it is built on twin lies. The first lie is that some people are more human than others. If you want to oppress people and do wicked things to people, well, your conscience can bear it a little more easily if you convince yourselves that they are not people. And so we have this habit of dehumanizing those that we are oppressing. Well, the Bible speaks so very clearly that everyone who is born of Adam is fully and completely human. It says he has made us in his image, male and female, and everyone on the earth has come from these image-bearing humans, Adam and Eve. We take from that that every human is fully and completely human. So we condemn the lie that some people are more and less human than others. Every human, 100% human, and more than that, 
100% bearing the image of God. That means that every person is a picture and image of God. And what you do with the people you know, well, you may as well do the same thing to a picture of God. To destroy it is to destroy a portrait of God, grievous and offensive in his sight, because every person is fully and completely human. That's the first lie that the Bible condemns, which much slavery is built on, the lie that some people could be more human than others. The other lie that the Bible condemns is that it's possible for one person to own another person. The Bible condemns this very plainly in Psalm 24, where the Lord says, the earth is the Lord and all those who dwell therein. Everybody who dwells on the earth belongs to God, is the property of God. And because of this, the act of enslaving another person, the act of pretending to own another person, Christians find this more grievous than the outside world does. And the reason is that if you claim to own another person, you are stealing from God. You are taking a possession from the hands of God. You're not just violating their autonomy. You're saying, God, this person doesn't belong to you. They belong to me now. This enrages God's anger. And so we condemn this lie that one person could own another person. Both of these lies condemned in the Bible. That is one way the Bible condemns the institution of slavery. There is another place, and we'll flip back and look at it now, where the act of enslaving others is condemned. If you wouldn't mind flipping back in your Bible about four or five pages to 1 Timothy chapter 1. It's five pages back in my Bible, probably something like that in yours. In the first chapter of 1 Timothy, Paul is talking about the law, and he is making the point that the law is not given for good people, but for bad people. And he begins to describe certain very bad people and gives this list of, of grievous things before God. Let's start in verse 9 of chapter 1 of First Timothy. He says, Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. And then he's going to go into a list of people who do this kind of stuff. So, so the people who do these kind of things are, according to this text, lawless, unjust, ungodly, unholy. These are unholy things. The first one listed is for those who strike their fathers and mothers. We pause and think of how grievous that is. This is someone who not only beats their father, but beats their mother. I don't know anyone guilty of that. Grievous before God. For the sexually immoral, oh sorry, for murderers is next. I think all of us rank murder high on the list of grievous things that we can do before God. The next two are triggers for some, for the sexually immoral and men who practice homosexuality. We'll have to leave those there so that they don't distract from the point today, because the point is the next one. The next one listed is enslavers. Or your translation may say man-stealing for reasons that I said before, you're stealing from God if you enslave somebody else. Some of our Bibles have footnotes that explain what that word means. It is the act of taking someone, claiming to own them, buying them, selling them, and enslaving them. It is the slave trade, the practice of slavery. Condemned in the Bible alongside beating your mother, alongside murder, condemned in the strongest of terms. 
And then two more after this, lying and then perjury. Someone who commits perjury is lying in a courtroom either to get someone off the hook for a crime they committed or to frame someone unjustly and have them imprisoned or executed for something they did not commit. Yet another very grievous thing. Enslavement is put in, those, in that company of grievous things before God. But even that is not the main point. The main point comes in the next words, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Sound doctrine is one of Paul's favorite phrases to use to talk about the gospel, the sound, healthy, life-giving teaching of Jesus Christ. Sound doctrine. And he says here that that practice of enslaving others is contrary to sound doctrine, contrary to the gospel. It is not fitting of a person who claims to profess the good news of Jesus Christ. This is why a man named John Newton, whose some of, name some of you know, uh, was at one point in his life captain of a slave ship and participating in the slave trade, doing this as an unbeliever. He came into contact with the gospel. He repented of his sins. He began to believe in Jesus and trust him for salvation for sins. And he said, I can't do this anymore. This, this act is contrary to the gospel. So he left the slave trade, became an abolitionist, began fighting for the freedom of the slaves, and eventually was instrumental in winning that fight. This is the man who wrote the words that we all know, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Now, when we sing those words, it, it brings some poetic beauty into my heart. It warms my heart to think, oh, God saved a wretch like me. But what it did in his heart was very different. He wrote those words because he meant it. He's saying to himself, I used to buy and sell people and grace saved a wretch like that, a wretch like me. Because he knew that his actions were contrary to sound doctrine, but that Jesus offers forgiveness to everybody. That's the story of John Newton. That is why in other places, Paul urges slaves to gain their freedom if they're able to do so. He says, by all means, avail yourself the opportunity if you can get free. And that is why in the book after the book of Titus, the book of Philemon, uh, he pressures even this man to release one of his slaves because he's a believer and he knows what the right thing to do is. Because as a whole, the Bible condemns the institution of slavery, the lies it's built on, and the act of, slaving, of enslaving others. That's different from other institutions that the Bible talks about. Uh, there are many structures in society, you might say, and some of them have arisen because people are wicked and do wicked things. Others of them are here because God built them into society and built them into creation. And so that is why when we read about government in Romans 13, uh, he talks about the authority relationship and says, submit to your governing authorities. And then he says, because this government is instituted by God, right? So we don't just submit to our governing authorities. We agree that the institution of government is God-given, right? God gave us government to flourish us. He does similar things with marriage and with gender and all sorts of institutions that are good and given by God. But when he gets to slavery, he never defends the institution, right? Just gives advice to people who are in this unjust situation. So that's the longer answer of does the Bible condone slavery? No, the Bible condemns the act and the institution. But there is something the Bible leaves intact. And that is we have relationships with other people in the workplace. 
And most of us have a boss. And that boss probably tells us how to do our job and what to do and when to come in. And what the Bible leaves intact is that that boss's authority over your work is real. That institution is God-giving. Having a boss at work is good and given to flourish you. That's important because we need help sorting out which of these institutions are God-given and which of these institutions are not. And I hope talking about it in that way is helpful for you, but what I want you to take home today is the main point. If you're a believer and you've got a boss at work, how you treat that boss matters. God cares about that. And he wants you to treat your boss in a way that is in line with the gospel. And so that is what we look at today. Now, we saw earlier that the act of enslaving others was contrary to sound doctrine, right? The lifestyle put out here by the same author, by the Apostle Paul, is said to accord with sound doctrine. Look at chapter 2, verse 1 with me. We're back in Titus now. He says, for as for you, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine, right? The other stuff was contrary to sound doctrine. This stuff accords with sound doctrine. So to live this lifestyle is to live the lifestyle that has been changed by the gospel, been made new by Jesus. And to say to others, this message I believe, this message is real and it has changed me. What does that lifestyle look like? Well, that's what all these sermons have been based on recently on this paragraph in chapter two. And that is what the words in nine and 10 are based on. To follow the leadership of your boss is according with sound doctrine, not contrary to sound doctrine. That means that one of the biggest things you can do to strengthen our church, especially to strengthen our reputation in the community, is to treat your boss and your workplace in a way that's in accordance with the Bible, to obey the Bible's teachings on how to treat your boss and those that you work with. Then you are showing others that the gospel you believe is real. So this means that if you have turned from sin and you have trusted in Jesus to save you from sin, you've said, I am a sinner. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. It's true of me too. I was a wretch before God. But he has offered his only son as payment for my sin. And I am willing to trust him. And by that faith, I find salvation. I find forgiveness from God. This is the good news of the gospel that we build our church on and that I call all of you to trust and to believe What he's saying here is that if we believe that, it's going to change us. There will be a lifestyle that goes along with that. And this is part of it. Verses 9 and 10. Let's look at the instruction itself. It says, at work, we are to be submissive to our leaders in everything. To be well-pleasing, not to be argumentative, not to be pilfering, but showing all good faith. So that in everything we may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. That is how a Christian should conduct himself or herself at work. So the main concept here is in the early parts of verse 9 to be submissive to our bosses. That means to do the job the way that the boss says to do the job. When they put us on the schedule, we should show up. When they ask us to do something, we should do it. Uh, Someone was telling me this week, the way they put it at their job is be where you say you'll be and do what you say you will do, right? Do the job the way that the boss says to do the job. Now, Jesus is a higher authority over our bosses, right? And so if they ask us to do something that Jesus does not want us to do, we cannot do that, right? Because there is higher authority above your boss. But otherwise, 
Even if you think what they're doing is not a good idea, we should do the job the way that they say to do the job. This is true whether your boss is good at explaining why something should be done a certain way, what the big picture goal is, how you fit into that big picture goal. Sometimes the boss is very articulate and takes the time to sit down with you and say, okay, here's what we're going for here and here's how you fit into that and how you can really make a difference and especially if you do it this way and the reason you wanna do it this way and not that way is because of this principle that we have at work here and they can lay all of this out for you and you're like, oh yeah, that makes sense. I'll do that that way, sounds good. Other bosses are not good at articulating that or more often, they just don't have time to explain to everybody why they need certain things done certain ways. And whether your boss has the time to do that for you, the instruction is the same, to follow your boss's leadership. Do it the way that your boss says to do. As you do, you'll be adorning the gospel. That's the big picture concept, just to follow your boss's leadership. We get after that a picture of what that looks like, really four particular pictures of what that looks like, and that's where we'll go next. The first is to be well-pleasing, and that just means very particularly to try to earn their favor by getting them the things that they want at work. I wonder if you know what your boss's big picture goals are. If your boss were to look back on 2021 as a great year for your department, what would that look like? Like, what do they want at work? If you can figure that out and help them get there, you'll be well-pleasing. You'll be earning their favor and making your boss happy. This also requires a certain amount of figuring your boss out. A lot of times bosses aren't great at knowing how they particularly like things done, how they like to receive communication. They don't know themselves that well sometimes. I wonder, does your boss like to receive communication in writing? or through email, or verbally. Every boss is different. And you have to figure out your boss and figure out how they like to be receiving that information. Some like it in email so they have a record. Some want it in person because they want the face-to-face -face conversation. Which one does your boss want? You gotta figure that out and figure out how to be well-pleasing to them. I wonder if your boss likes to hear feedback and input into their decision-making. Do they want to just make the decisions themselves and have you get out of the way, or do they want to hear what you think about these things? And how do they like to hear it when they're hearing feedback and input? You've got to figure that out and figure out how to interact with them in a way that is good for them, in a way that is well-pleasing to them. So this is some of what it means to be well-pleasing for a boss. The opposite of this is probably in the next words, which is not argumentative. If you've ever taught a children's Sunday school class or an adult Sunday school class or led in the church or led at work or in the school, there's a good chance you've come into contact with that sort of person who just likes to push back and argue on everything that you're doing. That one student who just likes to ask irritating questions. That one employee who doesn't think anything is a good idea and is always arguing and grumbling about it. And you know the frustration that just one person like that can bring to a boss. Well, the instruction here we have from God is not to be that one person in the group, not to give your boss that difficulty in that way. And maybe I could put it to you like this. Uh, I don't know anybody here who's a Pittsburgh Steelers fan, so I'll, I'll say it this way. Let's say that, you, oh, we got one? Okay, well, John's one Pittsburgh Steelers fan, there we go. Let's say that you're at work 
And there's one person in the office who's a Pittsburgh Steelers fan, always wearing the hoodie, you know, Steelers logo, everything. And let's say that that one person was the one argumentative, difficult person in the office. And that's the only Pittsburgh Steelers fan you know. How is that gonna taint how you view Pittsburgh Steelers fans, that one person acting like that? You're gonna think, oh man, those guys must be obnoxious, right? Because that's the only one you know. Okay, well, what if you're at a workplace environment and the one obnoxious, argumentative employee were a Christian? How would that taint the way people look at the gospel, the way people look at our church and what we do? People build their impressions of different types of people based on the few examples they have in front of them, right? And you may be the only light in your workplace, the only active Christian they know that. That means what you do matters, and if you conduct yourself one way or another, you're adjusting the reputation of the gospel in that workplace. That is how much what we do matters. So we can't be that one person that is argumentative in the workplace. The third picture is not pilfering, which simply means don't steal from your boss or from your workplace. This was very much a temptation on a first century servant. Uh, Some servants were actually very wealthy in the first century. It was a very complicated system that's not quite what we're used to based on our American history. But many of them didn't have much and many of the masters were very wealthy and very rich. So you could imagine someone who tends to a person's bedroom, say, and is cleaning it and folding the clothes, and they see their master's five gold rings that they have laid out. You can imagine thinking to yourself, okay, I see him put that ring on every day, and I've seen him wear that ring once, and I've never seen him wear any of those three rings. Meanwhile, my kids are hungry. It's just not fair that he has all of this and that I and my family have so little. I should, I should just take one of these. He will never miss it, right? And then I'll be able to provide for my family and things will be so much better. Things will be more fair and distributed more. And the word of God says, no, even when they have so much more than you, you can't steal from your boss. It's similar today in the workplace. It is easy to say, Our company makes $4.4 billion a year. They do not care about these post-it notes. They are not gonna miss this pen and post-it notes that I wanna take home for a project that I am working on, right? They're not gonna miss that little bit of food that is in the fridge with all of the overhead and profit that they make. But what the word says is that if it belongs to them, it belongs to them, no matter how much more they have than you have. What belongs to someone really belongs to them, and we cannot steal it. Now, some companies are very generous with this stuff. Sometimes you can look in the employee handbook and see, you know, employees can help themselves to this and this and that. And if your company lets you have it, then great, it's not stealing. Some bosses are very generous if you ask, but you have to ask. You can't take what is not yours at the workplace, even though that company has probably so much more than you do. So that's the third piece of instruction, not pilfering, not to steal from your workplace because it affects the reputation of the gospel. The fourth and final one is showing all good faith, which just means to earn their trust by being trustworthy. Conduct yourself in a trustworthy way, Let them see that and let them begin to trust you. The funny thing is that if you do that, if you conduct yourself in an upright way and earn the trust of your boss, 
some of these other things we've talked about don't become issues anymore. Then when you've got, you know, maybe some input that's a little critical, well, you've earned their trust. And so you've got a little bit of room to go to them and tell them what you think. If you've earned their trust, they might say, hey, you know what? I really want to give you this and this and this. And then stealing is not an issue anymore because they want to give you everything in the world. If you can earn their trust, it can make so much of this better. But we have to do it. We have to earn their trust. We do that by conducting ourselves in a trustworthy way. This is what Joseph did in Egypt. He was in an unjust situation. His brothers sold him into slavery and he was taken into slavery into the house of a man named Potiphar. And in that house, he worked so faithfully and the Lord blessed his work so much that the owner of the house put him over everything in the house and left He just left the whole house in Joseph's charge because he trusted this guy, right? Joseph was well-pleasing. He earned his trust. He showed all good faith. He said, I I can leave this whole house in your hands. And then after that, unjustly, he was put into prison. And the master of the prison said, man, this guy is faithful. This guy is trustworthy. The Lord is blessing everything that he's doing. And before long, Joseph is in charge of the whole prison and left in charge of the whole thing. Why? Because he conducted himself in a trustworthy manner. Now, the Lord may not bless your work as much as he blessed Joseph's work. But if you can conduct yourself in a trustworthy way, over time, you can earn the trust of a boss. And when you do, you'll be adorning the gospel in a beautiful way. Those last words in this sentence, which I have used a few times already, tell us what happens when we follow this instruction. And the words are, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. To adorn something means to kind of beautify it more, right? To be attached to something in a more beautiful way. You might adorn your ears with earrings or an apple tree might be adorned with apples. And in the same way, a Christian who lives out the teachings of the Bible in the workplace beautifies and adorns the gospel. And yes, I am saying that you can make the gospel even more beautiful by your actions. Can you believe this? It it is It is already the most beautiful message in the world, right? It is already the power of God for salvation for sinners. It can already lift up the lowest sinner and place him in the highest place in heaven. It is already the message of how God's heart beats with love for rebellious sinners. It's the most beautiful message in the world. And he's saying here that by the way you conduct yourself at work, you can make it more beautiful. The lowest level employee in your company can adorn and beautify the gospel with their lifestyle. You might compare this to an apple orchard. Some of us are visiting apple orchards this time of year. And regardless of the apples that are on the tree, it's just a beautiful place to be. The sun's going down in the sky and everything gets gold and you have these trees in perfect rows and you just get the camera out and take all these pictures of the kids because everything is so beautiful there, right? It's beautiful without the apples. But the apples adorning the tree make it even more beautiful, all right? An apple tree full of juicy, delicious, life-giving apples. Oh, that's got decoration on it. That's got even more beauty on it. What he's saying here is that, Christian, you can be that, that apple in the workplace. If the gospel is the tree in the orchard, you can be one of those apples that shows, hey, 
As this tree gives life to this fruit, this message gives life to people. This message of Jesus can change people's lives and make us into better people. That is the power of the gospel. You've got the opportunity to proclaim that every day in how you work. Of course, in order to do that, you have to talk about the gospel freely at work or else you're not adorning anything, right? If no one knows that you're a Christian and that you go to church and you're not talking openly about what you believe, then whatever adornment you're giving will just be to whatever you are talking about. So this is also a reminder that the people at work need to know that you're a Christian. They need to know you're part of our church. They need to know what it is that you believe and they need to know this Jesus that you are attached to so that your work can adorn the gospel. I was talking to a Christian businessman this week and he just mentioned casually, we weren't talking about this, but he mentioned casually, uh, when I need to hire somebody for our business, I find that church is the best place to hire somebody. And he went into a little detail about how he's just found that other Christians make really good employees, bring a good spirit to work, they tend to be honest. He went into a number of reasons why this is the case. And I love that there are believing businessmen out there who feel that way. What gets me more excited is that there are unbelieving businessmen out there who feel that way. There are people who don't trust in the message of the gospel, but who know that Christians tend to make good employees. And I just wanna give you testimony. I have seen at one point in my life this very principle make a profound difference in somebody's life. Uh, when I was young and in seminary, uh, I waited tables for, for money. And I spent the first year of seminary waiting tables at Ruby Tuesday, and it was, the store wasn't very successful, didn't have a lot of business, so I didn't make a lot of money. And it just finally occurred to me, this isn't gonna work, I gotta go work somewhere else. So I got super ambitious, and I said, I'm gonna find the most expensive restaurant in town, and I'm just gonna waltz in there with a suit and tie on and put a resume down and just see what, it, worst that can happen is I waste an afternoon, right? So I go into the most expensive restaurant in town, the average person spends $91, so the two-person table will be $180 at this restaurant. And uh, put the resume down. I have nothing close to qualifying experience. No reason that they should hire me. But hey, what have I got to lose? And so I hand the resume in. The manager looks at it. He says, well, we're not really hiring anybody right now. And he looks down. And, uh, and he says, actually, you know what? You got a few minutes. Let's, uh, let's go talk in the back. I was like, sure. All right. Got an interview. Whew. So we go back there. It becomes abundantly clear that I don't have the qualifications to work for this job. Um, but he hired me on the spot. And I was trying to figure out what, what's going on here. Uh, and, and then uh, I get there and I learned that there are two ladies who work there who were also seminary students, students at the same seminary that I was. And I was like, oh, cool, I got some seminary friends here, great. And time goes on. I'm not great at the job, to be honest. About three or four months in, he sits down with me and he says, okay, I like you and I wanna keep you around, but if you don't get better at this and this and this and this fast, I'm gonna have to fire you. Just laid it out there for me. I was like, oh man, okay. And I'm like, what is going, like why does he keep me around if I'm not great at this job? A few days later, he says, hey, do you have any more friends at the seminar? I'd love to hire more guys like you. And I'm like, you just told me you were gonna fire me. Like, wh what is going on here? Well, I eventually figured out what was going on. That restaurant had had some sort of corruption and stealing thing going on in it. The corporate people came in, they cleared out many corrupt people in the restaurant who were probably stealing from the restaurant. 
And this manager was brought in to clean the place up and to build a culture of honesty in this restaurant. Two months before he hired me, one of those young ladies came and applied and she had the word seminary on her resume and he said, I'll give her a shot, I need to hire honest people. She proved like me to be only okay at the job, but she was honest. And so when another young lady came in who, worked, who went to the seminary, he hired her. And then he hired me because both of them proved to be honest. Before long, what went on was through the three of us and then some others, about half of that front of house in the restaurant was seminary students, solely because we were trying to obey texts like this. We were not great at the job. But we didn't steal from the company and we tried to earn their trust and we just tried to be honest, good people at work in an industry that's known for a lot of corruption. Eventually, half of that front of house was people, you could have walked in the restaurant one night, half of the waiters and busters were people that worked at the seminary. A number of people at the restaurant came to Christ while we were there. And the coolest part maybe is that after five years, I left, I went into full-time ministry after that, uh, left a number of seminary students there. And a year or two later, one of those students was able to lead that manager to Christ. And he is a Christian now. Some of you have met him, he lives up in North Indy now and he's about to open a restaurant up there. He saw for seven years the gospel changing people's lives. He just said, these people are different. They don't make great servers necessarily, but they are different. What is going on here? And in due time, he was won over to the life-changing truth of the gospel just by seeing a group of people who had been changed like it. I tell you that story because I want you to see and I want you to know that the way you conduct yourself at work is truly one of the best connections our church has to the outside world. If you were to follow this instruction in your workplace, that would be better than a great social media campaign for us, be better than a great billboard for us, because it would show, it would prove that the gospel changes people's lives. So I would love to see us showing that every day while we were at work. Let's pray for a few moments and ask the Lord to bless our bosses at work and our work as we are there.